0: Second Samuel eight in your Bibles, please. Second Samuel eight. Oh, that's there we go. That's, oh, still a little bad. Try that. Second Samuel eight. Um, would you be willing to climb up there and bump that down a little bit? It should be the second one that's bumped up. Don't want to blow folks' ears out this evening. I'm attempting something very ambitious this evening and attempting to get through three chapters of scripture. Um, I I don't necessarily, I don't feel like I'm a preacher that gets bogged down, but we we can go pretty slow sometimes, just ask those that come Tuesday nights, and so we can get a little slow, but um, I'm going to uh, really attempt to be ambitious and get through a lot of scripture, which means we won't be reading all of the verses straight through, Um, I won't hit every verse verbatim thank you that's much better that's good and um as such if uh, if you want to go back and perhaps read a little bit more of of what we're preaching i would encourage you to do so maybe sometime this week just read through these three chapters i'll talk through it it should make a lot of sense to you and um that that might be a help to you uh for those of you that that really want to to see it all i'm going to hit all the highlights i hope it'll i'll, I'll be hitting all the points of understanding Uh, we're we're going to seek to cover these three chapters of scripture uh, and considering several accounts of david's reign which culminate to reveal unto us much of david's character as a ruler and as we do so we're going to focus our application on one simple point one simple idea that greatness is undergirded by humility greatness is founded upon humility as i put it in the title humility begets greatness and as we have much to cover, we're going to just jump right on in. Our study begins in chapter 8 with David continuing his conquest of the land surrounding what, what was the land of Israel at the time. Now, as we begin, it's important to understand that these chapters are intended to give a summary of very lengthy campaigns. You know, sometimes we read the scriptures, and as we read the scriptures, just because of the nature of particularly narrative and summary, we kind of lose perspective on how long some of these things might take we're going to read about David's campaign against several separate nations and if you think about some of the numbers of troops that we're going to be reading about these are large battles these are these are campaigns that might have taken weeks months uh, perhaps several months perhaps even into years as we consider all of the events at hand and so don't lose perspective on that we're not just covering uh we're we're not just covering a brief snippet of time we're covering it uh succinctly but we're covering a a large portion of time and as we continue through the, the the succeeding chapters chapters 11 12 13 some of the events that take place in those chapters are actually taking place during the events of chapters 8 9 and 10 do you get what i'm saying there so 8 9 and 10 are kind of lengthy summaries of 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 wars and campaigns and then within that time of lengthy wars and campaigns then the scriptures are going to jump to particular events in David's life that occurred perhaps during those campaigns during those battles and we're going to particularly be talking about his sin with Bathsheba and all of those events and those things will, will have taken place within the scope of these campaigns of his battles and so that I hope that gives you a little bit of perspective. We'll read about campaigns in every direction, in every region north, south, east, west, all around Jerusalem. David was busy, uh, but these campaigns did indeed span some time, months, if not years. And as David begins, according to chapter eight, he does so by taking a place called metagama which literally means a, a bit of the metropolis refers to a region around gath and her sister cities we read in verse 1 and after this it came to pass that david smote the philistines and subdued them and david took met out of the hands of the philistines so this would have been gath and and some of the cities around gath a bit of the metropolis area around the metropolis and this was the land of the philistines Uh, it is well west of hebron and for David, you can see there, if you, if you see the map, if you're not listening online, uh, you can see there, and if you are listening online, I encourage you to get a map um, for tonight's sermon, that Gath is pretty far into Philistine territory. It's pretty far toward that coastline. So David is encroaching heavily upon the Philistines' territory, upon this land, and this was a feat indeed. And we read in verse 2, and he smote Moab. And measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground, even with two lines measured he put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. The Moabites, as we see, that would have been to the southeast of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Dead Sea and he's the the next verse just you know one verse summary he took gath the next verse summary he took moab these are separate campaigns a great deal of fighting no doubt going on here and yet he he subdued moab and the scriptures tell us that that david's that they they became david's servants and they brought him gifts what that means is that he conquered the land and they became tributes they became indentured servants they paid him to not destroy them and they paid him as their servants now in verse 3 we move up north where we learn that David fought Hadadezer, ezer king of Zobah which was a region of the Syrian empire of the time we know this from 2nd Samuel 10 we'll talk about that verse 3 says David smote Hadad-ezer the son of Rehob the king of Zobah as he went to recover his borders at the euphrates so david is on his way up toward the euphrates so jerusalem is down south now and as david is moving up toward the euphrates he takes he he fights with hadad edzer the king of zoba the map gives you an idea of where zoba might be uh, the exact area of Zoba is is thus far lost to history nobody knows exactly where it is the map um, thinks it's between Mount Hermon and Mount Lebanon there and that region we would believe that as David did this on his way up to recover all the way to the river Euphrates to, to conquer all the way up there And on this map you don't even see the river Euphrates yet it's still it's still up above So this was the region in between those. And verse 4 tells us that in this campaign between David and hadad David captured 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 footmen, and he destroyed the rest of the chariots with exception of 100. We read, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 footmen. David hewed all the chariot- and then the King James supplies horses there, but reserves for them, of them for an hundred chariots. Enough horses for a hundred chariots is how the King James puts it. King James interprets it, which is is um, fine. Which which is likely right. So he leaves enough horses for a hundred chariots. But think of the the size of of this battle, of this campaign. Twenty thousand footmen were captured. Seven hundred horsemen were captured a thousand chariots were captured chariots were like the tanks of the day this was a big army that david defeated this was a a major campaign and he was there to subdue not to destroy he sought dominion not desolation so he captured a great deal as opposed to destroying a great deal he did destroy many many of of hadad ezer's ability to fight with the exception of of just a small amount of the military some means by which for him to defend himself but presumably not enough for him to rise up against david is the idea here david gave him enough strength to defend himself and his lands but not enough to come against david in rebellion now in verses five through eight we read of the rest of this campaign and when the Syrians of Damascus came to succor Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David slew the Syrians, two and 20,000 men. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Barothai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, king David took exceeding much brass so the syrians came down and you we we see that the syrians now here's the river euphrates so we finally made it all the way up to the river euphrates here was zoba where we were looking at before and the syrians were zoba was actually a part of the syrian empire they were kind of uh, individual kingdoms that were all part of syria in the same way that the philistines had five kings that had come together and so here we find that the syrians from the north uh, came down to help Zobah and and the word used is sucker them which is to help them and David it says here slew 22,000 men 22,000 men of that group of Syrians that's a tremendous number of people that died on that day and so the Syrians too became servants to David he subdued their land he put a garrison in Damascus which which would uh, regularly be the capital of Syria Uh, Damascus is a little bit lower here below Zoba but would regularly uh, be considered the capital of Syria uh, into later generations and the Syrians also like the Moabites paid tribute to David in these days In verse 7, we find some insight just into how significant the defeat was. Uh, I read it already for you. Uh, The ceremonial shield, these weren't battle shields. They were ceremonial shields. How do we know that? Because gold is far too soft to be a a metal to protect you in a battle. It would not be something you'd want to make a shield out of if you were actually going to fight a battle. The ceremonial shields were made of gold and David took from the cities of Hadad-Ezir all these ceremonial shields and a great amount of brass. Uh, As is the case in geopolitics, the more powerful one becomes, the more people take notice of you. And we find the king of Hamath, a man named Toy in 2 Samuel 8 or 2 in 1 Chronicles 18, took notice of David. And we read about this in verse 9. In verses 9 and 10, we read this. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad-Ezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, unto king David to salute him and to bless him, because he had fought Hadad-Ezer and smitten him. For Hadad-Ezer had wars with Toy, and Joram brought with him vessels of silver and vessels of gold and vessels of brass, which also king David did dedicate unto the Lord. We'll pick up there in a minute. So, th- the, this king named Toy, T O I, Toy, had been at regular war with Hadad Eidzer. If you look on the map here, Hamath would have been north of Hadad Ezer, there, king of Zobah. And in that area, we find that there was war, they had regularly gone back and forth and having watched david so effectively subdue his enemy he said hey i like this guy and so he sent his son the prince a man named joram in the text here saluted him and brought him gifts now in second samuel 8 we find that his son's name is joram but there is a parallel passage that we regularly consult as we're walking through second samuel the same account is given in first chronicles 18 and in first chronicles 18 toy's son is given a different name. He's called Hadoram. Now, this is often seen throughout scriptures that men have different names or multiple names. They're used interchangeably in the texts. We need not ascribe this to error, only to a different perspective. A lot of people, as I was reading up on this this week, they said clearly, Joram is is false. It's an error in the text because Joram is a Hebrew name and. This young man was obviously Syrian or, or some sort of, um, uh, li- likely some sort of Syrian or, or some sort of Phoenician. And so it wouldn't make sense that his name was Joram and Hadoram is a much more uh, Syrian name. So that's the one that's correct and Joram is a, an error, it must be an error. But we don't, we don't have to assume that. And it doesn't even make sense, does it? I mean, it doesn't even make sense that over a thousand years of this text being transmitted, nobody caught that there was this huge discrepancy in names between Second Samuel and First Chronicles. That doesn't even make sense that it would be a, a scribal error. We've mentioned several times already in this series that the events of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are recorded from two very different perspectives. It seems that 2 Samuel um, is far more interpretive, whereas 1 Chronicles is is more objective. Joram is is a far more Israelitish name. Hadarim is a far more Aramaean name or Phoenician name. To this end, it might be that the prince became and this is just one possible solution it's possible that the prince became a good friend of israel and of david and so he was given a a hebrew nickname or he was given a hebrew name perhaps he proselyted into the nation perhaps he came to david and he realized there's no god but this god and he became he, he proselyted into judaism and so they gave him a jewish name in this case we would expect second samuel to record that jewish name and first chronicles to record his official name to maintain his given name that would make sense to us based upon how we we read those two different accounts now it's only speculation i don't know why his name is joram in second samuel and hadaram in first chronicles i i can't tell you why the text doesn't tell us why but we know this all scripture is inspired by god that God has promised to preserve his word. And that we can be confident that God has given to us in the Greek and the Hebrew that he has preserved an accurate accounting of history, of geology, of theology, of every area that the scriptures touch. We can be confident that God has inspired and preserved his word inerrant and infallible. So don't let that throw you. We often say that when we look into the word of God and we don't understand it, the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with our understanding. And we need to remember that. Now, all of these riches the text tells us in verses 11 through 14, David dedicated to the Lord. Verse 11, which also King David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he subdued, of Syria and of Moab and of the children of Ammon and of the Philistines, of Amalek and of the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And David got him a name when he returned from smiting of the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. So we find that as David's fame um, grew, sub, uh, after subduing Syria, he then also subdued Edom. And once again, if if you uh, jump to the map, you find that Edom is below Moab. So again, we we've gone west, right? We've gone west to Gath and the Philistine nations. Then he went southeast to Moab. Then he went north to Hadad Ezer and to Syria. Now he's going southeast and and more south still to Edom. And he is subduing all of the nations for this one purpose to take the land that God had promised to Israel. That's what it said earlier in the text, that he's going to recover the land up to the Euphrates, right? Why recover it? Because that's their land. Given to them by God, promised to them by God. And David wants it. So we read of David's kingdom condition in the final verses of chapter 8, verses 15 through 18. And David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah was over the host, and Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, 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 excuse me, Ahalud, there we go, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub. And Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests, and Saraiah was the scribe, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were chief rulers. We'll come back to that in a moment. Proverbs 29, verse 2, tells us this. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. We all can bear witness to that today. As the wicked are and rule over us, the people are indeed mourning. By this reckoning, David's people were without question a happy people. The scriptures tell us David did judgment and justice. The people's authority was a man of righteousness. Wicked leaders inspire nothing but anger, loss, mourning, Sorrow, righteous leaders bring joy and rejoicing. So in in David's days, the state of Israel was one of rejoicing indeed. Now, we're also in these final verses introduced formally to David's supporting cast. We might call it his cabinet, whatever you want to call it. Jacob was his general, or excuse me, Joab was his general. He was the captain of his host. He was the man who led the armies. Jehoshaphat was his recorder a high position designed to chronicle the events and decrees of the king. Zadok and Ahimelech were the priests uh, and they would continue so for some time. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Saraiya was the scribe intended to know the law so that when the, if the king had any questions about the law, the scribe would know the law and interpret the law. Benaiah was over the Kerithites and the Pelethites Say now who are those? These were a band of men who were organized for the purpose of protecting the king. They were actually, it would seem from scripture, a Philistine clan, which is interesting, but not uncommon. Uh, They were perhaps men who had followed David during his exile days. We don't know that. But this is actually not an uncommon thing in history for monarchs to hire uh, a, a band of foreign mercenaries to be his protectors. Why would that be? Because foreign mercenaries have no stake in the king they're not going to want to they don't care about overthrowing the king they don't care about uh, a subversion they are foreigners and because they're foreigners they're not interested in the in the intrigue and so they might be a little more objective to protect the king because the king is paying them to do so and it seems as though uh, that would be why they would be perhaps um they, they would be removed from the typical temptations that might arise from family or from friends or nationalism as it relates to the king's protection. We might call them David's Secret Service. That would effectively be what they were. They would physically protect him, they might do some counter espionage, those sorts of things. Kerethites and the Pelethites. And finally, we see that David made his son the chief rulers, for better or for worse. Uh, he placed his sons into positions of authority, likely regionally. Likely he had his sons dealing with uh, the tribute and, and the positions of authority all around his, his kingdom. Now moving on to chapter 9, we find a wonderful example of David's honor, David's dignity, and David's kindness. We read in chapter 9 verse 1, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? we remember from our series in first Samuel a tremendous love that David and Jonathan had one for another being knit together like brothers and it is likely however that that David's intentions here are, are specifically tied to a, re, a certain request that Jonathan made of David just before David went into exile. And we read about this request. We read uh, about this interaction in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15. Jonathan is speaking to David, and he says this, And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. Jonathan and David are talking and Jonathan recognizes that David's going to be the king in Israel. That means, of course, that Jonathan is not, right? Jonathan's out, David's in. And as Jonathan and David are talking, Jonathan loves David and he asks David to vow a vow to him and he says this, David, number one, it's my my request that you would not kill me. When you rise to the throne, that would be typical of a king of the day, right? You rise to the throne, you kill those that would compete for that throne. If you're taking the throne from another kingly line, you kill everyone in that kingly line so that they can't come after you for their throne. Jonathan says, show me this kindness. Don't kill me. And then he said, also, show me this kindness. Don't, don't cut off my house. Don't destroy my children, my grandchildren. Spare them for my sake. When the Lord has cut off all of your enemies, spare me and my family. That was his request. And David agreed. David made a covenant with Jonathan. I will not kill you. I will not cut off your family. Well, David is unable to show kindness to Jonathan. Jonathan is dead. His best friend died following his father into battle. So he's eager to honor his covenant with his best friend by honoring the house of Saul and the house of Jonathan. And David finds a former servant of Saul, a man by the name of Ziba. And he asks him if there are any left of the house of Saul. To which Ziba replies that Jonathan had yet a son, a son lame on his feet. Do you remember this son? We've been introduced to him already. Perhaps you recall Second Samuel chapter four. This is when Saul's son Ishbosheth dies. Remember when Saul's son Ishbosheth was was um, betrayed by his generals, by by captains of his host, and he was killed, and he was beheaded, and they took the head to, to David. And at the time, we remarked that following the death of Ishbosheth, even though this crippled man, Mephibosheth, was still alive, and he was a son of Jonathan, so technically in Saul's line, he was next to the throne, there was no need to kill him. Uh, The the captain of the host didn't kill him because he wasn't a threat to the throne, because no lame man was going to be able to sit on the throne. That just doesn't happen. A lame man would not be able to become the king of the nation. So Mephibosheth had outlived all of his other relatives because he was lame. He had he had died oh, he had he had become lame the day that Saul and Jonathan died. When when it was heard that Saul and Jonathan had died and and, and the army had been smitten, Mephibosheth's nurse tried to pick him up and run with him and she dropped him, and he, he became a he he was paralyzed from the waist down when, when she dropped him at the age of five and so Mephibosheth did not die because he was lame and he was still alive he outlived the destruction of his grandfather's house and was yet alive when David inquired of Ziba so David sent for Mephibosheth Mephibosheth, and we read of their interaction in verses 6 through 8 now when Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan the son of Saul was coming to David he fell on his face and that's not supposed to be funny Right? He couldn't... Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) He couldn't... He was lame in his feet. Okay. He fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. And I will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, "What is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as am I as I am?" Excuse me. Mephibosheth is naturally terrified when David calls him, right? Mephibosheth is terrified because he fully expects that David has called him to kill him, to destroy him. Mephibosheth is a son of the son of Saul. Saul was the one who tried to kill me for years. Mephibosheth is quite and understandably afraid here. As such, Mephibosheth would expect to die. Instead, however, David tells him, don't fear. And he promises to show kindness to him for the sake of his father, Jonathan. He decrees that Mephibosheth would receive all the lands that were the house of Saul's by right. Saul was from Gibeah. He had lands according to that, to to the promise of God. He will receive all those lands back. And beyond that, he said, Mephibosheth, I want you to continually sit at my table to eat. Now, this was an unprecedented honor. An unprecedented honor. The king ate with his family, and he ate with the very best of his friends or comrades or or closest of acquaintances. And not only that, but Mephibosheth was a lame man. In many kingdoms, a lame man was not even allowed to see the king because he was lame he was tainted he was imperfect he was not a direct relation to the king he was a lame man to have this honor is really unheard of now we'll come back to these actions of david in our application we still have uh plenty more to consider but in the final five verses of this chapter we read the logistics of david's plan to provide for mephibosheth and his household. David makes Ziba. So, this man that had been Saul's servant, he makes Ziba Mephibosheth's executor of David's will. M- Ziba is to make sure that everything that David wants from Mephibosheth comes to pass. Ziba and his sons were then made responsible to care for the land that was given to Mephibosheth. And to provide for all of his needs. Now, Ziba had 15 sons. And he had 20 servants, the scriptures tell us all of whom now were, their their lives were devoted to the house of Mephibosheth in the name of Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's son. Now we hasten to chapter 10. Actually, we're doing quite well on time. Where David continues to extend his kindness to others. David had heard heard that the king of Ammon had died. A king named Nahash, according to First Chronicles 19, verse 1. And that his son had taken the throne. And so we read in verse 1. And it came to pass, after this, that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father and David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. Uh, Nahash had not had a good relationship with Saul. As a matter of fact, if you think way back to 1 Samuel 11, Saul's first military campaign, when a couple of the, the uh, cities in Israel were surrounded and they sent to the king... And remember, that the the enemy king said, here's the deal. If you surrender to me, I'll pluck out your right eye, and then you'll serve me, but you'll live. If you don't surrender to me, I'm going to destroy you. And they said, give us some time to, to get back with you. And they sent to Israel to see if anyone would help them. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and Saul went and he destroyed that army. That was the army of Nahash. That was the army of this king. That was the Ammonites. That fell in that battle, so not a great relationship between Saul and, and the kingdom of Ammon. But David had a good relationship with Naash for whatever reason. Perhaps in in the days of David fleeing from Saul, perhaps David got some help from Naash. The enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing. So perhaps it was in the days of David's exile that that good relationship was formed nahash had shown kindness unto david and while while it's not recorded um, david desires to comfort nahash's son and support this new king the king of the ammonites so david sends servants but the princes of ammon were not comforted nor were they impressed by david's actions and we read in verse three and the princes of the children of ammon said unto hanun their lord thinkest thou that david doth honor thy father That he hath sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? The princes determined that David's actions were not a gesture of kindness, they were rather a gesture of espionage. He came to scout out the land. Now, from a practical perspective, we can understand this, right? Ammon is just to the east. Of, of Jerusalem, just over the Jordan River. David has conquered to the west, to the north, and to the south, and to the southeast. He's literally made everybody but Ammon his tribute. Might make sense that Ammon was next, right? That, that, that would make sense from a strategic perspective. It's not an unreasonable subs- uh, suspicion. And the prince, uh, the new king of the Ammonites, listened to his advisors. And verse 4 tells us, Wherefore, Hanan took David's servants and shaved off one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. So rather than accepting with gladness this gesture of kindness, he, he made a definitive act of defiance. This was an act of, of war against David a deliberate offense to the whole of David's kingdom and house. I mean, he didn't just send them away. He took these men and he shaved off half of their beards, which in Oriental cultures is man's greatest ornament. Beards come and beards go in our culture. In their culture, that's the man, that's a man's thing. That's That's his ornament. That's his grace. It's his beard. It's his ornament. So they shaved half the beard. And then also cut off half of their clothing, exposing their bodies, and it would have been a, a skirt, a robe, and so they cut off half of it from the ground up, exposing them up to their backsides. Extremely embarrassing, extremely offensive, extremely offensive for, to do to an ambassador of another nation. He sent them away in utter humiliation, and David is livid. He is livid at this offense. He tells them to remain in Jericho. Now, Jericho was right on the other side of the Jordan, right? It had not been rebuilt yet. It was just rubble. But, but he told them, remain there until your beards grow back. And then he received them back into Jerusalem. They were able to stay there until their dignity was, was, was restored, effectively. Their beards grew back. They did not have to face the nation in, in a state of, of humiliation. Now, Ammon realizes at this point that he has initiated open war with Israel. He knows that. And he knows that, that alone he has no chance. I don't quite understand why he did it. I mean, other than uh, obviously his advisors, you know, we need to take the first step. We need to be offensive here, I guess, whatever. But he knew that he could not take on David alone. So he enlists the help of Syria. Yes, this is the same Syria that has already been conquered, that is under David tribute. Now, obviously, Syria would not be happy to be under the tribute of David, right? so so they enlist the help of syria and so they create a situation here where david is going to have to fight a battle on two fronts he's going to have to fight the syrians from the north and the ammonites from the east you see where ammon is there on the map now directly east of jerusalem and now we have a battle on two fronts and the scriptures tell us that the Syrians supplied 20,000 men from Zobah and supplied 1,000 men from Meaka and supplied 12,000 men from Ishtob or Tob. 33,000 men from Syria coming down. Now, Joab sees that he's going to be battling on two fronts, right? Joab is the captain of their host. He sees that he's going, to be, he's going to be battling on two fronts. So verse 9 tells us that he took the best of his military to fight the 33,000 men of Syria. Look at verse 9. It says, When Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose all of the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians and the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. Ammon was obviously, even with the Syrians already having been subdued, Ammon is obviously the weaker, the weaker military might here. Ammon does not have; is not really a threat. So Abishai is going to fight the Ammonites with kind of the remnants of the military, and Joab is going to take the elite force, the force that's been fighting for years, and he's going to put them up against the Syrians. And notice his strategy. He says in verse 11, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. Then you'll send people my way. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come help thee. I'll send some men your way. And that's Joab's uh, battle plan here. And notice his words of faith in verse 12. Be of good courage and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God, and the Lord do that which seemeth good to him. Joab is indeed a man of faith. And we see that all throughout uh, David's interactions with Joab for a number of years. Uh, Joab is not going to do everything right. As a matter of fact, he's already done some things wrong. He'll continue to do some things wrong. But he's a man of faith. And he says, Be of good courage. Fight for God, fight for country, and then we'll just let the Lord do what the Lord is going to do. So he says, let's get this done. Let's be men. Let's do this. And indeed they fight. And the scriptures tell us, verse 13, Joab drew nigh and the people that were with him unto the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. The Syrians fled before Joab. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, they fled, they also, before Abishai. And entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. So the Syrians attacked Joab with thirty-three thousand more men. They fail They run. Ammon says, "Uh-oh, the Syrians failed. We, we, we they ran too. They didn't. I mean, they, they had no, no chance." But the Syrians had an even bigger problem now, because they were already tributes. This was a, this was an uprising. This was not a sovereign nation attacking David and his people. This was a a conquered nation rising up against his captors, his tributaries. They had already been defeated in chapter 8. So Hadad Ezer, who's still alive, the scriptures tell us, sends for the Syrian kingdom's North of the river Euphrates. Now, to this point, the Syrians that have been fighting David have only been those south of the Euphrates. David only conquered up to the Euphrates. That's what God promised to Israel. That's where David subdued. But now they call for the people north of the Euphrates. Look at verse 16. And are sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobak, the captain of the host of Hadad Ezer, went before them. And when it was told, David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. So David, the Syrians bring even more forces now. And David sees this, so he gets his forces together. And make no mistake, this was, this was a brutal, brutal fight. We read of success and failure in a matter of moments. Look at it with me. Verse 18, and the Syrians fled before Israel and David slew the, of the, men, slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen and smote Shobach, the captain of their host, who died there. And when all the kings that were servants to Hadad Ezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. So we read this battle in just a matter of a couple of verses. But when you consider hand-to-hand horse and chariot combat with 50,000 soldiers on either side, you are considering huge, terrible battles. When you talk about David slaying 22,000 men or slaying... 30,000 men. You know, the Battle of D-Day is considered one of the largest battles in modern history. Just for perspective, at any given beachhead, and there were five on D-Day, spread over 50 miles. Five beachheads. On any given beachhead, there was anywhere from 21,000 to 34,000 troops that landed. The casualty ratings were in the 5 to 6,000 range. For that day. Imagine 50,000 against 50,000 in one valley, hand to hand combat, chariots, horsemen, swords, spears, arrows. Imagine 20,000 men dying in these wars. That kind of a battle is not one any modern general would ever be interested in repeating. But over the early days of David's reign, there were numerous such battles with massive armies fighting in close quarters. So the Syrians failed their campaign. We read it already. David killed 700 chariots worth of men. How many men per chariot? Two, three? 40,000 horsemen died. 40,000 horsemen died. And then the captain... Shobach, he, he died as well. The captain of Haydar force, the general. General died. Now, at this point, Syria was utterly defeated. The, the northern Syrians made peace, southern Syrians were under tribute, and the Syrians said, Look, Ammon, we're not helping you anymore. And this ends our exposition of these chapters of Scripture. Seeing all of this and understanding David's interactions here. Now, as we transition to our application this evening, I would like for us to turn our minds back to David's actions on behalf of Jonathan and Mephibosheth. And I would like for us to consider two verses in regard to these actions. Proverbs 15:33 tells us this: The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. Before honor is humility. Proverbs 18:12 tells us this. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. Here we read two different forms of Hebrew poetry. Some of you I've introduced before to Hebrew poetry. Some of you that have been through Sunday school lessons. Perhaps on Tuesday night we've covered it. Oh, I know we covered it last summer on Tuesday nights. Hebrew poetry is written to rhyme. But it's not written to rhyme in sound. In... uh, in modern english we like everything to if it's poetry if it's songs poetry it has to rhyme and sound right roses are red violets are blue and then something that rhymes with blue at the end It's the way it's got to be i can't say roses are red violets are blue and uh, my dog ate your flowers it just it doesn't have that ring to it does it it doesn't it doesn't rhyme now maybe i don't know but but Modern poetry, the English ear, the American ear, the Western ear, it has to rhyme. Not so much in, in Hebrew language. And this is, this is something that several cultures have in common. In, in many cultures, poetry does not have to rhyme in sound. And in, in Hebrew poetry, the rhyme is rhyme of thought, of concept. The concepts rhyme. The, the, the thoughts are, are complementary or perhaps contradictory. There's a pattern to it. We call it parallelisms in our academic pastor circles. And there are two different types of parallelism that we find in these two verses. In the first verse, Proverbs fifteen twenty-three, we find what is called synthetic or completive parallelism. This is where the second phrase builds upon the thought of the first phrase. The fear of the Lord is to learn wisdom And building on that before honor is humility. There's a link in this concept, in this parallelism, between fearing the Lord and being a man of humility and thus honor. And there's that link there because it's completive. it, 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 It brings them together. Added to the thought of wisdom is honor through humility now in the second proverb proverbs eighteen twelve, you see what we would call contrastive or uh, antithetical parallelism it's where the second phrase contrasts with the first phrase and it helps you understand what wh- what something is by contrasting it with what it's not i tell you this is a powerful f- this is a powerful thing Helping a person understand what something is by helping them understand what it's not. You know, my my, uh, wife and I talk to people that read our website quite regularly. And there's one page on our website that people absolutely love. Our website's very thorough. Tells you everything you need to know about our church, our doctrine, our thought process, everything. But every person that I've talked to that said, hey, I like your website, they always talked about one page that they love the most. They say, you have a page called what we are not. They say, that is the most helpful page on your entire website, what you are not. Because you can, you can say what you are all day, but it really helps to know what a person isn't. When a person says, I am not this, I am not that, we do not preach a health and wealth gospel. We do not preach a Calvinistic gospel. We do not preach uh, easy believism. We do not preach this. We do not preach that. We are not dominion theologians. When you tell people that wow, it's like a, a weight lifts off their shoulders because there's no surprises, right? And, and they love that page, what you are not. And that's, the, 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 the Psalms and Proverbs do that often. They help you understand what is by telling you what it is not. And that's what we see here in the second one. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but before honor is humility. Pride brings destruction. Humility brings honor. And by understanding that pride brings destruction, it helps elevate what brings honor. That's humility. Now consider with me David's character in light of these verses. David is at a point in his life where he is at the the top of the heap, right? He is at the top. It's one thing to be kind and to be humble when you're at the bottom of the pile. It's one thing for David to show kindness to Jonathan when Jonathan is the king's son and David is still a tribute to the king and David wants to honor the king and David wants to honor his son and and it's one thing to show kindness to Jonathan then. When David was running for his life, it might make more sense that David was a humble man, right? When David was just ruling over Judah and Hebron for those seven years, it might make sense that David would be kind to those who had wronged him as he's still seeking his ambitious goal of ruling over all of Judah and Israel but David has achieved all of that not only has he become ruler of Israel but he has subdued to the north to the south to the east to the west everyone around him he has a vast region that he is now king over no one can stand against him great enemies have fallen before him There's no one left to impress. There's no reason to keep up pretenses. He has no need to form alliances, which are against his will or against his best interests. And it is when David is in this place, when David is at the very top of the heap, that he takes, he thinks carefully enough, he takes it upon himself to personally find and bless beyond any reasonable nature the grandson of the man who wanted him dead for the sake of his best friend, Jonathan. Had David not blessed Mephibosheth in this matter, no one would have known. No one would have cared. Mephibosheth certainly certainly wasn't expecting it as a matter of fact I can imagine that Mephibosheth spent his days hoping that David would never think of him <laughs> because he didn't want to die no one would be able to fault David for protecting himself after so many years of danger and despair for for wanting to have just a little bit of a prick a little bit of a shove off to, to Saul and his family after all of the misery that Saul had put him through. But here's the thing. David was a genuinely humble man. A man who saw the events of this life as bigger than himself. He was a man who understood that character and honor and justice and righteousness are like seeds that are planted in the ground, which, though they have no immediate advantage, work in the lives of those who live by these divine virtues, divine blessings, which cannot be measured. And what we're talking about, what we always talk about, what the whole of the Christian life is founded upon is faith. Faith is that which causes us to yield what our eyes or our understanding or even our emotions want from us or perceive in this life in deference to spiritual wisdom. That first verse in Proverbs links humility to wisdom see humility is not always the expedient thing to do the emotional thing to do the the logical thing to do as a matter of fact pride can get you pretty far just look at our presidential race but pride brings destruction and wisdom is humility which brings honor David could have by all human reasoning at the very least ignored Mephibosheth and at best destroyed him instead David goes the other way he shows mercy beyond expectation love beyond degree honor above reckoning he he is humble and men and women we read many amazing feats of david today david we read in these three chapters he subdues armies he subdues kings he leads his nation with might but do you know what in these three chapters is really the great act of david what really solidifies his honor and his greatness it's not that he conquered the philistines or the Syrians or the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites. Five whole kingdoms he conquered in these three chapters. What brought this man honor, what makes him great, is his humility. David was a man who loved God enough to elevate grace above self-interest. David was a man who loved God enough To honor the covenant he had made with his friend now no one here is a king right I don't think but we have fathers we have mothers we have leaders at work older siblings we have a pastor we have church leaders we have those who are in no discernible place of leadership, and yet you interact with friends, you interact with siblings, you interact with neighbors daily, weekly. And regardless of your position, the principles of divine wisdom ought to matter to you. From a human perspective, you will come into instances in your life where you will have the opportunity to assert your right in pride to stand up and say, this is mine, I'm going to take it, I'm going to do it. Actions with which others might say, you go. That's completely reasonable. You do it. No reason not to. You deserve it. But those who are great in the eyes of the Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, are not those who assert their rights at the expense of others. They are not those who make selfish demands. They are not those who get to the top and then put down everybody who can challenge them. The greatness of a man in the eyes of the Lord is gauged on the basis of faith and humility. Men ascribe greatness to warriors, victors, champions, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, conquerors, warriors, great men. But the most exalted man in history, the man who sits on the very right hand of God, the man For whom our entire date system is made. The man who has a holiday, several in fact, in his honor. The most exalted man in history, whether uh, particularly in the heavenlies, exalted above all things in heaven and earth. The man unto whom every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess one day. The man that will be honored more than any man in the history of history is the same man who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he was threatened, he opened not his mouth. Is the same man who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Is the same man who hung upon the cross, gazed upon his executioners and cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we must see the link this evening that the greatness of David did not make him a man of honor and humility the honor and humility of David made him a great man a great man is a humble man the greatness of Jesus Christ did not make him a man of humility Jesus Christ's humility made him a great man in the eyes of God that's what Philippians 2 tells us that he was highly exalted because he humbled himself if you want to be great truly great men women children listen up if you want to be great if you aspire unto greatness in the eyes of God the only one who truly matters you will be humble You will clothe yourself in humility. You will not lift yourself up above your brethren. You will not assert your right at the expense of others. You will not demand preference above others. You will assume a posture of a servant, as David did before Mephibosheth. And then you will be great. And I'd like to leave you with a verse this evening, just want to leave you with the authority of the word of god on this matter so we find in james 4 10 as we close humble yourselves in the sight of the lord and he shall lift you up that's it humility begets greatness let's close in prayer